Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> We're happy in my house. Miami beat them. Jeff Hirsch, not happy. <laughs> oh, man. Such is life. Giants fans on this side. Well, and if I don't know about fans, it, I think we're ba- I think the Giants are pretty much done after that performance last week, but we'll see. That All was right. pretty depressing. So they'll get a so they'll get a high draft pick. Nothing wrong with that. I've got Welcome some shows for you, Rich. What? You got to watch the Kung Fu documentary on Netflix. What's about it called? The Shaw Brothers. What's it called? Um, I forget the name, but I'll I'll bring it up. And then I found an older, look at about a year old, uh, a show called Undercover out of Belgium or Denmark. I can't remember on Netflix, which is about based on a true story about the biggest ecstasy dealers in in Europe. Sort of like a crime drama. Very mm-hmm. very strong. Uh, two seasons so far. But the the Kung Fu documentary on Netflix is fantastic because not only does it show you how entrepreneurs created an industry in Hong Kong. But how influential – I never even realized Kung Fu was in hip-hop, in breakdancing, in, in, in film later. And then all the things that really Quentin Tarantino lifted for Kill Bill from the Shaw Brothers. And the greatest part of the whole documentary is the Shaw Brothers decide, the biggest filmmakers in Hong Kong, to not sign Bruce Lee and not sign Jackie Chan. Pretty crazy. So uh, let's get started. Uh, yep. I'm, you know, Jason, right when – the news hit about Warner Brothers announcing that they were taking not just Wonder Woman, but taking their entire film slate directly to HBO Max day and date. I got, I think within minutes, literally within minutes, I had an email from you saying, can we do a light shed live? And we haven't had a repeat guest. So you're our first repeat guest on light shed live. And you were like, very, very, let's very. get, let's get on and let's talk about sort of what this means for the film industry why was it like what was the like what from your standpoint like why was it so important for you to talk about this a, a couple a couple of things um one was you and i have been talking about this for 20 years um you know as as an inevitability and frankly both of us thinking it's late i didn't like the tenor of the argument so i understand the passions on filmmaker side and and certainly um where warner wanted to go and I think it was going to a nasty place. And I think it was being buoyed by some people in the ecosystem that were caught off guard. And then finally, um, knowing Jason a little, Jason Kyler from when I was at Slingbox and he was at Hulu, which was a competitor, um, I, I think I understand his aim. I know his personality a little. And I also didn't love how it was being characterized. Um, but ultimately, this is a great thing for people who love movies and a great thing for people who are fans. And it's interesting that there's now like a a schism maybe between fans and the artists and the artists in the studio. So it's a fantastic topic. And um, I think it's all to do about nothing because you can't, I think you've written about this before, you can't fight the future. And a lot of the filmmakers we'll talk about today fought them at DVDs, fought them at streaming, fought them at television. I mean, what the famous quote of like the VCR was like the, you know, was basically um, going to destroy the entire film business. I mean, that was that that was literally the views that no one would ever go to a movie theater again because the VCR was going to destroy it and VHS cassettes at the time. And I look at it as a kid who grew up on VHS, which is it opened up a world of film to me when there were limited theaters with limited run dates where a movie was in and out of the theater where I couldn't see the past. I mean, I, I saw Frank Capra on television. I saw, you know, a lot of the movies that I missed before I was born on VHS. It brought me into the theater, but also brought me a whole different kind of library. And 
you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when HBO started at 6 a.m. in the morning. And I would wait, you know, on vacations to wait for 6 a.m. to come so that the new movies would come on screen. This was before they had shows. So this is a wonderful thing, I think. But what I don't understand, and I'm just going to pull up a slide for everyone. So if I look at the best pictures, the, the, the things that filmmakers are most excited about at the Academy Awards, this is 2001 through 2020. And what strikes me here is that you have to go back for a, a true commercial movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture. You have to go back to 2004 for Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. But essentially, over the last 16 years or 15 years, no movies done U.S. box office north of $141 million. And I mean, there's movies that have done 17 and $27 million. Uh, essentially, I would call that almost nobody saw these films in theaters. And so yeah, when I, I look, hear I don't look at that as the bellwether for, you know, whether or not this is a good idea or not. I mean, certainly those movies you showed up top are fantastic films. I'll look at it this way. If Shape of Water, which I believe was Fox Searchlight yep. and uh, uh, the billboards, um, three uh, billboards, uh, yeah, three billboards, I think also Fox Searchlight, um, those movies took a lot of money to market. They they probably, you know, just broke even at that point. Certainly the Oscar uh, nomination is a marketing tool for them. But imagine had those movies had that buzz, if those movies were put day and date on a service, just from a financial pr perspective, what that would have done for a Hulu in that case, in terms of uh, average revenue per user over time and ultimately um, making the, the enterprise value of, of Hulu even more. The argument from an artist is going to be, we're not going to get paid the same way. And we can talk about that later. And I think that Jason and Ann are probably dealing with that right now but ultimately as a business you're giving less away to partners i don't mean artistic partners but remember i, I believe i don't know what the the law was but movie studios can't own theaters but they can now own they can i mean service. they they now can they again can. now they yeah. can that law was finally repealed by making del rahim earlier this year the paramount decree but I, I i don't think it's going to happen right like i don't expect disney to go out and buy movie theaters anytime soon no, other than if a show place, you know, maybe some sort sure. of branded thing. But my, my point is that it makes smart business and you'll work out the way that it will work with artists later. But if COVID showed you anything, and I, I want you guys to sort of tell me what your experience has been. It's been these streaming services have been the savior from insanity in many ways. Um, you know, we're watching a lot more. We're becoming it's becoming a norm. I've I've gotten rid of cable during this um, you know, pandemic, because I just saw how much of my usage was going into the streaming services. Why wouldn't that be the case for movies? And it doesn't have to be at the fall of a theater. I, I don't think anyone wants movies in the theater more than Warner. I don't think this is an either or. But the reality is that theaters don't innovate too quickly. And it's a very expensive proposition to go into theater. A streaming service you could pay for with one ticket to a theater, at least in an A city like a New York or L.A., I'm sure it's, you know, 30 or 40 percent cheaper in another city, but it's still food and parking and all these different things. It just makes economic sense. And you're going to get to more of an audience. And if you're a filmmaker, don't you want your stuff to be seen? Yeah, I mean, that's the point. I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the Oscars and the message. There's always um, some sort of charitable message every year at the Oscars or a cause that they're supporting. And the underlying theme is inclusiveness. So you would think that all of these artists would want to be inclusive of broader audiences across the globe. 
um, and give access, if it's possible financially, um, uh, to as many people as possible so that their work is seen equally by as many um, potential viewers as possible. In the past, when there has been talk of day and date, you would see full page ads taken in the New York Times or the Hollywood Reporter or Variety, and they'd list you know, filmmakers from Jim Cameron to, to Brett Ratner to others. These are all filmmakers that are top dollar filmmakers. They're not, in, they're not indicative of everybody that wants to work. And they're also indicative in many cases of a kind of film. They have access right. to that system in a way that lots of directors and actors don't. My assumption is we're seeing fewer movies being made. There are more franchise pictures than ever before. A lot of the movies that we showed are either from boutique outlets at the studios like Fox Searchlight or somehow in the indie system. And I want to see more movies made. I want to see more directors working and I want to see more actors working. And I really do believe, I don't want to give it short change, but like the executives are going to figure out the economics for the artists. And in many ways, this is no different. You would know better, Rich, but like when Disney, after the WEGA strike, they were changing the way that they were paying people as well in, te in television. The economics of the business are changing. It just is what it is. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because when I think back to like, go back, whatever, 20 years and somebody that was doing broadcast television, it was embarrassing to do cable. Like you would never, I mean, think about it. When you started watching FX, right? What were you watching? You were probably watching Ally McBeal reruns and X-File reruns. You, you know, when they did Nip Tuck in some of the early shows, like it was totally groundbreaking. I mean, think of the shield on us. Like it was embarrassed. It was, it's gone from embarrassing to be on basic cable to then basic cable was the place with, you know, all of the shows on AMC, et cetera. The way I joke about it is when I was a kid and you watch the golden globes, the TV people sat by the kitchen. <laughs> now they're the hottest people in the room and the Bad. narratives that they're telling on TV from FX to HBO to Showtime to AMC, they are, you know, in some cases taking movies to the shed. Right. But, but now that mantle is being passed from the cable networks, these basic cable networks and even premium cable networks. And it's all now shifting to streaming. Like even FX, John Landgraft is up on stage at Disney plus day or streaming day. And is talking about the shows he's making, not for FX, the cable network, but for the FX on Hulu. And we can debate whether that's a, you know, whether the sub brand matters anything to Hulu. But the point is, now they're basically saying talent's going to streaming. And then you look at the stars and you go, you know, take Nicole Kidman. She's been in Big Little Lies on HBO. And now she's doing, you know, just did The Undoing uh, on HBO, um, which is now part of obviously of HBO Max. And I would say even the talent has become more famous doing TV episodic content for TV and streaming than they were in the movie theaters. And so I don't know whether the compensation is the same, but if the goal is fame and visibility of their work, I think what's happening on these streaming services and TV platforms is bigger than what the movie business has done for a lot what of people. What if it's the art, Rich? And it's not the, the money or the fame. It's not whether you were told on Twitter. It's the art right. of the it's silver the screen. Art. I do but think that, there's something that, to that. that. Goes I mean, the reality to... is there's only so many movies being made. I mean, if you want to work more, there's more television being made than there's than there's film, and there is no stigma anymore. And in terms of fame, if that was your goal, any artist you speak to will tell you, for the most part, that the minute you hit TV and repetition, your your um your recognizability goes up. 
Um, people stop you on the street way more. Television, they think you're they're your friend. Um, television is more accessible. And uh, I don't see a difference. I mean, we talk about the Academy and the Emmys or award shows or whatever it is. Like I, I see them as the same thing. And I would I would I would still want to go to the theater when I want to go to the theater to see a film. But I am expected to watch a lot more content because of these streaming services. The amount I've watched because I have these da- these things that are not badass FOD like we've seen before from the cable companies. I've seen more movies. I've seen more documentaries, which we can talk about in a second, and more television because it's in my home. And that's just the way the world is going to work. Yes, would a Christopher Nolan movie, Tenet, which I thought was fantastic, look better in a theater? Yeah, but on my 80-inch television, it looked pretty nice too. By the way, the quality, Rich, let me, the quality of the content, even like something like Ted Lasso, even just the way it's filmed, it's just Mandalorian, in my view, is better than some of the movies. I mean, the quality um, for the for that programming is equal to, and, and in some cases, I think even better than than yeah. what you're what's. And being th- there is there the is a little bit. Let's call it out. There's a little bit of snobbishness here, and I'm I'm the biggest fan of bit? artists. I'm the biggest fan of theaters. But when Nick Netflix makes all these TV shows, and we can say it's not an HBO original, or you know, it's not up to Showtime par on some of them. And yet Netflix knows that in a certain part of the country for a certain demo, those shows are doing well. And yet there's part of old Hollywood that would like sort of say, well, that's, you know, trash TV. We're not talking about the crown or the queen's gambit. The reality is there's different kinds of consumers. The streaming services are are delivering to them in ways that they've never been delivered to before. And the movie theaters upgrade their experience every 15 years versus, say, a hotel that's every seven years. The experience is very expensive. And also there's a little bit of cynicism around that because everything is, you know, one, two, and three. They're sequels. They're big movies. The amount of that small film that we used to be, um, you know, dependent upon in the 70s and 80s isn't there anymore. And I would argue that's coming back on streaming and it'll serve specific audiences and it'll put people to work that have not worked before that aren't working on Tenet or MI7. Well, a great example of that is Ron Howard spoke at the uh, at the P&G annual event earlier this year. And I watched him speak and he, he was asked about streaming or making movies for streaming. And he goes, look, I love cinema, but audiences tell us where to distribute our films ultimately. And what's interesting is he put out his first movie ever onto streaming, direct to streaming, Hillbilly Elegy onto Netflix. The film was destroyed by critics, destroyed. I mean, it's got a 27 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, like killed a lot of Hollywood. Everyone says they pass on this film. This was a sh- this was not Ron Howard at its best. But the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes with over fourteen hundred people voting, which is a pretty big number, is 86 percent positive. So They're probably doing very well for the service, <laughs> you know, like it's just like there's this disconnect. And going back to Walt's question, like the art. I don't know. I mean, if the goal is to make to get stuff made, I think about Netflix for a second and go, if they're going to have 400 million subs in five years and charge $15 a month, let's just say, and they're going to do 70 plus billion dollars of revenue and they're going to put thirty five billion dollars into programming spend, they're going to make a lot more content than all of Hollywood makes today. Just them, let alone what Apple and others do. I go to Sundance every year. I go to Tribeca every year. The reason I went to those places is that I'm a fan of film and most of right. those movies I would never going to see anywhere else unless I really searched it down at a, at a, at a minor screening or whatever. 
yes, a lot of those films get sold to Hollywood and get into the distribution chain, but a lot don't. Now with SVOD services, most of those films find a venue. It's done wonders for documentaries. It's done wonders for small film. I just think it's very important. And, you know, I don't, I don't know Christopher Nolan and I am a massive fan of his. And if you haven't seen Tenet, it is for me, cause I'm not that bright, indecipherable on first view, but the greatest action I've ever seen on second view, it's really good. And on third view, I think it is a masterpiece. And yet there was something that was almost class-like in the argument, not really recognizing. I, I thought about Tom Cruise's speech to the crew, his, his, his blow up around COVID basically saying they're looking to us as the gold standard and we're trying to put people to work. Hundred, thousands of people are being put to work. That's what these this SVOD, these SVOD services and movies are going to put more people to work because the stakes are different. And I think that's very important. And, and I think a lot of the argument coming for just being in the theater or it's not a movie or it's not an Academy Award movie, if unless it's in the theater uh, or you can't sell, you can't sell successful. Well, you can't sell. Mer- I hear you can't sell. Mer- like no one's ever bought merchandise off of, uh, you know, something on Netflix or no one's ever bought merch off a TV show. And it's like, I don't know, Baby Yoda's doing pretty darn well. And like, OK, and that we comes know that's from- coming. We know that's coming. They have our credit card. There's no that's no big thing to actually put like after like a YouTube video runs and they give you suggested videos and commerce. There's no reason why every service couldn't do that on spot. My daughter loves watching Minecraft videos and she buys the merch that the gamers, you know, she buys, she wants, like, that's what she wants for the holidays. I, the Hanukkah present is, is gamer merch from YouTube. Like, there's no doubt in my mind that the argument that you need a theatrical release to sell merchandise or to create theme park rides to me is just completely absurd. Yeah. And, you know, listen, if you read a lot of the articles and we're going to put out what we call a set at Redef at the end of the day with some of your writing and some of the people that have written on this topic and the directors that have written a couple of things that stuck out at me that this was somehow a knee jerk reaction to a failed HBO max launch. Um, You know, HBO max and distribution aside or their product issues aside, they have really good people working there. They're going to figure it out. This wasn't some sort of knee jerk reaction. The minute they hired Jason Kyler, you got to know where this is going and you have to think about it from Jason's point. And I'm not talking for Jason here, but given I saw what he went through at Hulu, he had a board of media companies who were in Hulu, but also were fighting Hulu in many ways. They were saying it was hurting C, uh, you know, C3, C7, and C12 ratings. It was, you know, he- Competing he with them on more. advertising. Yeah. Uh, are they going to get 400? Imagine, he asked for $400 million for originals. Imagine that number now. You'd laugh at that number. You cannot, uh, a lot of this thing was about this town is built on relationships, and that's very important. But sometimes those relationships- stop you from doing things because you think you may hurt somebody or you think you may get hurt on a deal. The reality is you needed an outsider to come in and Anne is a relative outsider as well and make a call for the future. And this idea, I remember when I was trying to get rights for Sling and Jason said to me once, he goes, it's easy, Jason, just get 6,000 people in a room to all agree and you're good to go. If they had come out and asked all the agents and all the talent, this never would have happened. There would have been leaks to the newspapers, maybe even preemptive lawsuits. You had to pull the trigger, say sorry, and then work backward with deals. That's what they're doing right now. And I am shocked, Rich, and you would know better than me. But on the Disney Investor Day, I would have bet you dollars to donuts that they were going to make an announcement about day and dates 
on the service and they made no mention as far as I concern. And I have to think that they, if I'm right, they pulled that stuff because of the reaction to Warner. Look, oh, it I probably think- opened opportunity for them. Right. But I, I don't know if they necessarily. The yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. Oh, everyone hates Warners. Now they'll come work for Disney. But Disney right? has to think but, that way. But they, I'm but they left. They, they kept saying flexibility over and over and over again. They pretty much told everyone who was watching that they are going to day and date. It's just a matter of when, not if. So let's let's talk about that flexibility, because if you want to play Monday morning quarterbacking, a friend of mine suggested what Warner could have done, which is like, listen, COVID has decimated our business. It's decimated the theaters. They're on their last legs. Um, We're going to do this through COVID until we're out of a danger zone. And then we'll take a look at where we are. And if they were successful, there's really no going back anyway. And if they weren't, they're hedged. But even if you look at the fine print, if you look at Ann's comments on CNBC, if you look at Jason's comments, they're not giving up on theaters. Or they could have done this. I'm I'm curious if you think this would work, which is you could get Wonder Woman or Tenant day and date on the service, but you'd have to pay an a la carte fee. Um, Those were two ways that they could have gotten around this a little and and kept the economics intact or at least kept artists at bay. But it's a half step to a future that I think they're already late to. Right. Either you rip the Band-Aid off and you go all in or why bother? And I look, I honestly think Disney's moving in that direction. I think they know that is ultimately the right decision. But I do think to what Brandon said, part of this was Warner was taking a lot of heat. Disney was like, let's just play a little bit slower. We know theaters are not going to be back at full capacity in May for Black Widow. I, I My gut instinct is Black Widow is day and date in theaters and on Disney+. Plus. They just don't want to say it until sometime, you know, in March or April. Let me ask you about Paramount. Paramount has been because of the the theater. They, they have a great slate, you know, topped off by what sure. looks to be a Top Gun sequel. That's insane. Um, but they've had to sell movies. to Certainly Amazon the star is a little insane. Right. But yes, that's the well, point I, that I'm, I'm Ann big, Sarnoff was fan. making. Yeah, I'm a big <laughs> fan of, you know, what what Cruz just did. Maybe not the screaming. But my point is, is that. If, if Viacom was in a different position, meaning let's say if Viacom owned Hulu and they had a very large pay base already, would Viacom, would Paramount have moved those films like Coming to America sequels and others to those services in order to buoy subscription rather than selling them for cost plus whatever to an Amazon, which they needed to do. They had too much of a backup and it, it frees up for Jim. But my point is that, you know, I, I, I think that it, depending on the situation you were in and what kind of service you had and how well it was going and what the model was, AVOD versus SVOD, inferred what you were going to do. And I don't think that Jason is an arrogant guy that wanted to stick it to artists. You don't have anything without the artist making stuff. But, you know, this has happened before. You know, no one's made a lot of the examples of like Facebook. Facebook, every F8 conference, they'd come out and say the algorithm's changing or something's going on and Zynga would go nuts and you know, the game companies would go nuts, but ultimately they survived and they adapted and they figured out how to make money. And I see this is what's going on here. If Mark had gone out or, or anyone at Facebook had gone out and tried to get the hundreds of thousands of partners online and see if they agree with it, nothing happened. So, so two things. One, the question just came in. Do you agree that Black Widow will end up day and date in theaters and on Disney Plus? Um. 
I don't know enough about the Black Widow franchise to tell you, you know, how important or unimportant it is. But I, I believe I'm, I'm a usually a good guesser. And I was shocked that I did not hear these announcements at Disney. And I, my guess is that it had to do with, you know what, let's take a moment and figure out how to socialize this better or word it better. We're doing it. But Warner just took one on the chin for us. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I heard Jason uh, Alan Braverman, the general counsel of Disney, spoke at an event, um, a Brandeis event a couple of weeks ago, and he made the comment that the single greatest challenge of his legal career is figuring out how to navigate shifting the entire economic model that the film and television business is based upon to a new set of a, a new set of metrics where all of the success and pay metrics don't apply anymore. Yeah, I mean, Charlie Ergen, if he ran Disney, it would have been, like he used to tell me, uh, innovation through litigation. <laughs> you know, I mean, the reality yeah. is that Band-Aid had to get pulled off. People's feelings got hurt. I believe that they're double backing now, whether it's Toby Emmerich and Sarnoff, Jason Collar. Yeah, but Jason, step back. Step back. You have lived and breathed disruption for your whole career, starting to the business you sold to Viacom. So everything you've ever done has been about technology disrupting the media business. So let's yes, just but talk I was that lucky as- in that what I was doing had no had no history. I wasn't I didn't have uh, relationships before. No, I understand. But but you have followed the tech and media collision for many years or just the overall tech disruption yeah. for many years. So where I'm going with this is what talent what I hear from talent is on a per picture basis or on a per project basis, we won't be able to make the money we made before. Like we will just end up. We'll do fine. We'll make lots of money, but we can't generate $900 million of profit on Avengers Endgame the way we did in five mm-hmm. in this model. Hey, look at, I, look I, at I the music yeah. industry, right? Tech, technology has made it so that musicians are, don't make the same money that they used to. So what did they do? They figured out another way and innovated into live. And now they make their their living that way. I'll say this for my for my money, the music business is way more cruel and way more egregious against the way artists are making money and labels are making or aren't making as much money and labels are. With motion pictures, you know, there was a great line years ago in an article where I don't know if it was Jimmy Ivey talking to Steve Jobs or someone, and Jobs or someone said to Ivey, he goes, "Who said the music business had to be around forever?" Meaning there is no guarantee to anything, and your first dollar gross on your three hundred sixty-five million dollar, um, you know, film—that's great. I want you to make the money. I'm not on the side of the of the studio or on the artist, but just because that's the way it was doesn't mean that's going to be the way it is. And the people that are arguing for the way it was have fuel money for their jets. Exactly. And in in this case, there actually is an economic model to probably make the same the same amount of money that that filmmakers used to make. Right. And remember that the music business is borrowing money from a label to to let them have the rights to your masters to sell so that you can recoup and get paid. I would only say to the film artist out there and the TV artist, don't let that happen to you. But the deal is not going to be the same. And I think the argument is going to be that if Tenet had come out on HBO Max day and date, what that would have done for the service in terms of joins and other kinds of things would have been so lucrative and lopsided to a Warner in a newer kind of deal that 
It's not uh, going to be yeah. a replacement. You know, DVD. And Chris Nolan's art would have been seen by more people. I mean, just yeah. a related comment. Christy Marchese chimed in and said, you know, uh, um, um, she goes, I skipped watching Hillbilly Elegy because of the reviews, but my mother-in-law, who I'm sitting next to and is actually listening to this here in Albany, and she's showing me her Facebook Hi. feed full of friends and family who loved it, said it was their favorite film this year, and some comments include that it should have got, gotten a, it should get an Oscar. I love that because I, I, I love this about Netflix in general, which is as much as I do depend on certain critics, I grew up, you know, depending on Roger Ebert, at the end of the day, they can kill something that someone may love. You know, Tenet did not get great reviews universally, and I love that film. Right. Loved so the point is more people would have experienced Tenet than the current model that it's going through. And then, you know, Walt the other day was like, where can I watch Tenet? What streaming service? And I said, well, you have to buy it for 20 bucks. You can't even stream it yet. And he goes, really? Like, how is that possible that I still, with every one of these streaming services, I still have to wait until March to stream it? If you're an agent right now, you're probably thinking about, well, if my film of my client goes to day and date on the service, how much did I contribute to fighting churn? How much did I contribute to new subs? Those are the kinds of questions that are like, to me, what you should be concentrating on is not somehow because the, the agents were not filled in and now they're vilifying, you know, executives at Warner or they want to put Jason Kyler's head on a plate, which is ridiculous. They should be thinking about how does the model change and how do they get paid? It's not going to be the same thing because it shouldn't. The, the industry is changing. And if you want to walk, you could walk, but there's still only so many people funding these things right now. But that's and what you say. I'm them, not sure you get paid by vilifying the guy with the checkbook and calling well, listen, them out I, publicly. I if you read the articles that are coming out that are not from a director, you can tell who's feeding these journalists You know some of the stories. It's certainly the agents were pissed because those are relationships, as they should be upset. Because their value is we know what's going on and we're your defense against the guy who's trying to not pay you whatever. If that's the real you know, cynical way you want to look at it. Rather, what I've been thinking about is the, the future's here. How is the other guy making money and how do we contribute to them making money? And if, if Wonder Woman somehow sets off three million new subs, sure. how is their revenue share in the lifetime value? Sure. The first business I ever had, Rich was I had a website for Columbia House and BMG Music Service before they did on the internet. And I compiled all their catalog. And ultimately what I did was they said, shut it down. I said, well, what if I referred them to your site? So everyone I referred to their site, I got a bounty and I made a lot of money. I think what you're going to see is artists are going to say, what did they contribute to the growth and the, and the enterprise value of the service and how do they get paid on that? Sure. So a successful agent will know the new norm and go into AT&T or whoever and say like, look, we know this is going to impact your subs by X. Rich Greenfield says that the value is going to go up by Y in the market cap. We want to, we want to cut on the increase in market cap from the higher subs rather than like well, just writing these letters about like, oh my God, you have to pay us. Like that's that I think going to be the new norm. I think that'll work itself out, though, in the competitive bidding process between the streaming services. There isn't just one streaming service out there. Right. right. This will go up for a piece of content that people really want. That's right. And now you're talking about in other conversations, we've had 25 and 30 million dollar episodes for TV shows to get not just for the production quality, but to get um, talent and and um, directors on board, showrunners, and that'll play itself out in the film business too. 
but, but I do think that the risk is a competitive process. There is, but there's going to be this risk that I can't deny, which is there is so much content. And when you stack these amazing TV shows next to these movies and you talk about all these niches, you know, like with the, 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 the karate documentary that, you know, Jason's talking about, when you stack all of this niche content together, do you actually end up spending, does it lessen your interest in how many massive blockbusters you spend money on? Because the niches are maybe just as valuable right. as the big blockbusters, yeah. and so I believe, ne- that's a, that's I believe Netflix probably. I agree with you, and I think Netflix probably already knows the answer to those things versus I, the studios. I yet. know, I think that, but yeah. that's why studios would be scared, right? Like that's why yeah. talent would be scared of this. I actually think the, the the toughest thing facing Jason and Ann right now is not the announcement and the band aid pull off. It's that I don't believe everyone's watching this. So as this strategy. Um, comes to fruition. Um, I don't believe the early days of these films are sort of going to replace what the film ultimate was or the success of it. When you know you can see a movie anytime you want, the the viewing is going to be fragmented. And therefore, it's going to take a longer horizon to show you that this is going to be successful. And I do believe it's going to be successful. But I guarantee you that people are going to jump on day one saying, okay, Wonder Woman the we, we spoke to Nielsen and the number of streams is X, Y and Z, you know, in terms of, you know, a, a, a guess. And they're going to see, see, it doesn't work. That's not the way you have to look at this. This is turning, you know, a battleship. It doesn't happen on a dime. It's the right thing. And it doesn't have to come at the expense of theaters. I, I, listen, I will tell you, I miss people. I like seeing people. I like every Friday I would go with your buddies, Jason Rapp and Greg Clayman and Rob Goldberg on to, to play hooky at the movies. And we discuss it afterwards. And I like talking to the screen. That is America's piazza. It is our town hall. I don't want that to go away. But also theater owners have to look at what they charge, have to look at the innovation, have to look at variable pricing, have to look at the diversity of film in their theaters. Um, it's not a one-sided argument, you know, and, you know, Every single time that the studios have tried to do day and date in the past or even discussed it, even on smaller films, the theaters were vicious. But at the same time, the studios are slaves to the experience within a theater. So, Rich, let's, let's go back to what you said, though, in terms of the actors that aren't going to be happy for these blockbusters. Excuse me. OK, there's a few people that make a shit ton of money. But if you're saying that the alternative is funding a bunch of niche, um, niche, whatever extra stuff then there's a lot more actors that are making more money than they're making right now so is this yes. about paying up one guy 100%. to fuel up his jet or employing more people across that's, a broader yeah. group of, of content so the answer so, is yes so hold on. but i mean i'm getting to it i'm getting to an ultimate question yeah. so the, that was the rhetorical it's a one, part it's a one percenter thing here i mean that was the rhetorical a, part or, or an eighth of a percent but yes question though is for the agents what do they prefer like there's the one guy in the, the in the market that's got the whale but like for the agency overall, do they make more or less money if now they're spread out, of, uh, you know, across a broader array of talent? If more money is put into the overall film and television economy, which I believe in five years, it will dwarf where we are today. Talent agents should make a shitload more money in five years than they make today. Right. It's just a so it's scary just one transition. guy who's got the best actor as his thing. He's kind of screwed. But the, the rest of the agents in the office are yeah. probably happier. I don't, I'm not, I'm not here to crap on agents, but I can tell you a story from my career when I was at, at Viacom at MTV and we were launching all our broadband networks and we didn't want to depend on the programming from the network because it was largely locked up in the MVPD deals. 
So I went and presented what was called MTV Overdrive and Comedy Central Motherload. I, I remember Overdrive. Network. I was an Overdrive yeah. user. Was Bob yeah. Backish days, right? Yeah, and I I went and presented those to the to the um, to the agencies first, and I said, "Listen, you guys are you know uh, representing talent. There's only so many movies and only so many TV shows. That's the reality. They have a lot of downtime, and they have some ideas that may not rise to the level of a television series or a film." but may work well in short form. And if you're in the 10% business, let's make this into a multi-billion dollar industry that you can get 10% of rather than nickel and diming me in the beginning. And I couldn't get one agency to think about different kinds of fee structures for short form at the time to build an industry. They wanted, you know, on a, on a percentage basis, what they were making in film. And I get it, but it just wasn't the same thing. So I didn't feel at the time there may have been individuals and agencies, but not as a whole, that they were looking to nurture a new business. And, and that, again, these are, they are looking out for their clients. They are the slayers for their clients. I understand that. I think upset. it's even more basic than that. I think change is yeah. hard. And, and I think it's just yeah. industries are evolving. We see it in every form of technology where it disrupts existing businesses and things change and like the rules yeah. change and there's a different set of players and the people you were friends with. I mean, these legacy studios, I mean, you saw MGM's potentially for sale finally, like again, like, you know, the, the industry is going to look different in five years than it does right now. And yeah. I think that is scary to everybody yeah. in the ecosystem. And if there's any piece of advice that I would give Jason, and I don't suppose that he would have to take it or anything is that artists are different. You know, remember that when you're making a film, this is someone's child, essentially. It is the most personal thing in the world. I, I can tell you from someone who sat in on, you know, um, pods at the Sundance Institute where people are, are working on their scripts and working on their films. It is so emotional. It isn't just business to them. And, you know, the way that you communicate with them is important. Ripping the Band-Aid off is one thing, but for all the talk about the Internet and, you know, the rise of Amazon Video and Prime and the rise of Hulu and Netflix. But is it, but day, is it any different? It, hold on. Is it any different than when Sean Parker, Daniel Eck had to get Sean Parker involved to get Metallica to stop freaking out about Spotify? Like they hated the idea of streaming. Now, find me an artist that doesn't think a big artist doesn't. I mean, Taylor Swift's yeah. now on Spotify. Like, give me a break. All these things that everybody hates technology yeah. until they realize it makes them bigger than they ever were before. I think there's a lot well, of artists that have a problem there. with Spotify, Rich. I, I mean, come on. There, there, I mean, there, come on. Yeah, but but like, the biggest theory, artists that they weren't there are all there now. bought in because they've Lars, had to. Yeah. Right. They have yeah. no other Lars choice. Lars Ulrich, Ulrich was about. not Christopher Nolan. In the case of <laughs> Lars, they were stealing music even if we as the fan loved it. And yes, he was a very rich rock star. Whereas we're talking about someone in Chris Nolan who gets dollar one growth. The gross of the movie was going to be much less because of COVID. The deals that he may have cut in the future would be impacted. It's not exactly the same thing, but the, 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 the similarity is you're following the audience. And without, without, listen, the studio has nothing if they don't have an artist, but the studio has nothing if they don't have a fan. And why would you ever give anything up? And I think what Kyler and Ann did is no different than what, what Reed and Ted did at Netflix to transition from the DVD business 100%. to the streaming business. Also, similarly, it was the right idea and the right decision, but perhaps the exact way in which it was executed probably could have been better. And 
the the question I have for you is, do you think there will actually be repercussions for Warner because of the way they handled this without and and you said earlier they couldn't just talk to all of the filmmakers that that had um, movies coming in 21 because of leaks and other things. But I I would I would I would bet and I don't have I have no knowledge of this, that I would bet that Anne, Anne Sarnoff. Toby Emmerich and Jason Kyler have probably done a thousand phone calls since the announcement. I would guess that they have um, dealt with a lot of the paranoia and the fears by augmentation to deals. I imagine there are some artists who are so angry, you know, I don't know if it's the guy who's doing Dune or if it was Nolan where they may decide to leave. I think I also, you know, one of the things you realize here is like, you know, when you see labels sue lots of sites for DMCA issues and all this other kinds of stuff, and if you call the CEO of the label, he's way less aggressive than the letter from the lawyer may be. I have a feeling that Nolan's, um, you know, op-ed or Dennis's op-ed um, are not as as vicious. I mean, those those are more vicious than the actual phone calls that may have occurred after the fact. And I do think this is going to settle down and it'll probably be a pyramid where some may decide they want to work with another studio, but that other studio is going to do the same thing. And then what? Then you're going to have some people yeah. um, who are going to money talks you know, at the end. Yeah, exactly. Money talks at the end. And by the way, remember, if I'm if I'm the head of the studio, the way I look at this is that I have these deals that I have to take care of in the short term because of this announcement. And then there is a lot of runway past that. And there's new artists coming down the track where the new economics will work. But also lost in all this is that Warner told the theaters they're getting 17 films. 17 films are still going there. They're not saying that something's going day and date and not in the theater. That's right. So the audience still has the choice. And if it is such a better experience to see these films in the theater, then they will then you and I will go see them in the theaters. Was that before or after you, the C-Band auction, by the way, the that 17 film prediction? Yeah. You, you, you split, you split the, 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 you know, the, there's a step up type of thing, but you split with the theater. So now, you know, does a movie need to be that expensive for cost? You're, you're, it's more Whoa. expensive because you're splitting it. Well, you're what about marketing? How, wait, wait, movies, you can spend two to 300 million worldwide marketing. If you start flowing, you don't need to spend $300 million to market a film on HBO max because you know who your viewers are. And so, yes, you have to take out some advertising to create awareness, but the, the homepage is your billboard, right? Like that is, that is the most important thing I think we've heard on here, which is the marketing is so expensive. If HBO max becomes the service, I think it will. You've got Andy Fursall and product who's fantastic. You've got Casey Bloys. I think the best programmer maybe there is with, you know, a, maybe up there with John Landgraf. Except for that ending of The Undoing. That ending was terrible. That's, I disagree with you. I want, I want, to, oh, I want, to, I want, I want to debate you on that in a second. Uh, but let me get back. To it. The point uh, is, is that if you get that service to 50, 60, 70 million users, that spot on the homepage is your marketing for the most part. You still have to make awareness for new films and that kind of stuff. But Netflix proved that. On The Undoing, it was a book. That's what the ending was. And – the movie wasn't about who did it. It was about everybody else's reaction to who may have done it. Sorry, the show. It's okay. That's a um, fact. It's in the Bible. We have a question that's come in sort of about streaming services. And I guess, you know, it, the question specifically on Paramount Plus um, coming into the space, obviously Paramount does not sound like they're about to do what we've been talking about, meaning 
they do not seem to be following in the Warner path. They're putting a SpongeBob movie directly to Paramount Plus, but it doesn't sound like I actually don't believe the entire movie slate, like A Quiet Place 2 or the um, the Tom Cruise um, new film. Those are not going directly to um, Paramount Plus. What do you think of like another new entrant to the space? I mean, I guess maybe start with your thoughts on like we've had Peacock launch. Uh, we, you know, we've got Discovery Plus launching next week. We've got Paramount Plus probably a few weeks later. Like what are your thoughts on the new entrants here? I think I think in general, you're going to see different kinds of models, hybrids. Um, Avod alone. I haven't played with Plus yet. I think it's early January. I've been trying to get together with Tom Ryan from Viacom just to get a sense of combos or other kinds of things. But I would argue that just looking from the outside that Viacom isn't doing that yet just because their services aren't in a place that they need them to be. They don't have a big enough of a pay in in the old CBS Access, uh, All Access, uh, Paramount Plus. That audience isn't big enough yet on a pay level to justify that. Um, or or they haven't combined a Pluto and a, and a CBS All Access yet. I, I imagine that's the route they're going to go because if you want to create asset value, if you want to create subscribers that are paying you a fee every single month, even if it's a hybrid AVOD, you have to put out new content. And right now they're just in a transition phase. And remember that they suffer from the fact that they went through that crazy lawsuit for so many years and stopped them from really doing what they needed to do and now I think they're trying to catch up. I think the question, though, you know, Max's question um, is like, can they build a big business as a number four, or number five streaming service? And I guess that's a that's a it's, tough it's, one, it's, right? It's, yeah, it's I think it's you know more about this, but, you know, it, it's about discretionary income. It's about where the, in, the the economy is for us. You know, I've dumped cable and I've bought every service I can that I watch from Curiosity Stream to quello to all these you know stingray quello i don't know how to even pronounce it the music service um i'm not the average user i imagine that primer netflix is the basis for the household if you do have one of these services you may have an add-on in disney i think it's harder for the others it's fascinating to me because i've spent a ton of time 50 60 hours on hbo max and when you look at the catalog when you look at even some of the new stuff flight attendant or some of the new documentaries their programming is really, really strong. They've suffered from distribution. Roku's been taken care of. I think is Fire deal done yet? Amazon Fire. Uh, it is done with HBO Max. It is not yeah. done. Uh, there is no deal for Peacock on Amazon. Still, so that's the one Got major it. holdout. So those things are coming, but I, I, I can't imagine that Max at some point doesn't have so much water cooler conversation, or or at least you know chat conversation that it doesn't become part of the household. Um, it's not just this HBO highbrow stuff, but also, you know, other things coming from the other networks and, and other stuff that Casey's going to create just for the service. But then you get into four or five services. And if we've seen anything, cable hasn't had an up month in years and there's going to be a, a wall. And I think that if you talk to, but NBC, do any, but, but do any of these companies, to do, does anybody have That's enough That's why content. they're doing ABOD hybrids. The ABOD hybrids are basically saying there's going to be SBOT overload. And we have to have free services available for them. And then you're going to argue, um, well, is the is the ad load going to be the same as in television where they stack it crazy? I haven't seen that on Peacock. I've seen ad load a little less and I've seen repetition um, pretty low on, on ads. So I think we're way out from being able to tell that. I And I think there's going to be some SVOD purists. There's going to be some hybrids in the middle. And then there's going to be some AVODs. And I think there will be more than four or five services in the home because of AVOD. 
you know, I was talking to someone the other day in the industry and they were like, you'll know these companies are serious about streaming, like really serious about streaming when they stop calling them plus or max and they just call it what it is, meaning like the day it's called Disney or the day it's called HBO and we stop calling it these like, you know, these like incremental, you know, extensions onto everyone's name and it just becomes the entire focus of the company. You know, I, give, I feel like I give Jeff Jeff Hirsch and Stars has done that. I mean, they've they basically said like we are a multi platform, you know, producer of content. We have experiences. You get us on cable, you can get us on on online and SVOD, and it's just called Stars. That's just all it is. And by the way, they never did the dual login. Like you remember you had a go, you had now, you had HBO at the channel. They just said this is Stars. If you have an account already with the cable company login, if you don't join and you know get it a la carte, I think you'll yeah, see that become the norm. No, and look, I think the question for whether it's Showtime or whether it's Stars or like all of these, the question is is like the budgets that these other companies are spending. I mean, Disney talked about. I mean, Disney in twelve months went from a plan of spending four billion by twenty twenty five on Disney Plus to spending eight billion. You know, add on Hulu and and. Uh, star and what they're doing with um, with ESPN plus and they're talking about you know 14 15 billion dollars of content spend Netflix will be spending over 20 billion this year alone forget about where they are Apple's probably going to three to four billion pretty quick like the, the bar of spending is moving up Rich, very AT&T very fast might spend 20 billion dollars in the c-band auction and people thought so, it might be 10 so your point is less. they have a lot more capital at their disposal no if they I'm want. just saying that like you know these are big companies too, and there there can be flex in other projects that maybe come up. But also, I guess no. my question to you guys is: when you look at the stars, they haven't had to have that volume. They know to to create a show and that to have something ready to pick it up with the demos that work for it, and they've been growing. Now, whether they're ten million or eleven million subs, it's not capped. Disney Plus, but they're still going to be a business for them. Um, sure. And they don't. Oh, this is not arguing whether there's a business. Yeah. The question is: how do you how get to sort of, of a, a scaled right? Are these, you know, what is the size of these businesses? I mean, can you be a multi hundred million subscriber service at a 20, you know, I think of the ultimate goal of these services, can you have a half a billion users at $20 a month? Like that's the long-term goal. Certainly when you look at the cable bundle in the U.S. alone, you know, it's a hundred million subscribers at the peak at, you know, $90 a month. A lot of that was sports, but you take it out. You were still probably spending forty plus dollars a month for non fifty dollars a month for non sports. There's a there's a lot of dollars to go around. As, as, as forget about just the U.S. but globally, as you break that all down, who's going to be the major I, I global think player? Is cheap. Yeah, I hate you know it's been it's been presented to me like if you're one of these smaller services, how do you deal with churn? Do you just literally try to get back users every single time they have a new show? Or and you, by the way, Stars has double digit churn. Yeah. Right. It's, and listen, it's, it's something that I think everybody has to deal with now, and they're going to have to get to a place where they realize what the rhythm of release is. I don't think that it's lucrative to have to get your users back three times a year. That makes no sense. Right. So you but need to remember- keep, you need to create a ton of content, which is why Disney yeah. pivoted, right? Like Disney thought they could do this on a content light once a year Mandalorian. Now you look at what they're doing. And I mean, it was, mind-boggling how much content along along their core franchises they're putting out over the next five years. So I was blown away at the announcement, but do you think that, I mean, I, when Disney Plus launched, I was 
game because I didn't really see Pixar movies and Marvel movies. They're not my thing. So I really caught up and I loved some of the documentaries like the Imagineering story, which is frankly the best thing on that service. And I mean that in a great way. They had seven shows or eight shows that were new. I was shocked. But yet when you look at that, I mean, literally it was like, it was like the allies coming in in world war, world war two. And that, that investor conference was just mind boggling. It was like the Marvel universe coming in where all of the, all of the different characters are coming in at the end. They're like, they're dropping, you know, on, on people that are suffering in the prison camps. They're, they're, they're saving people. I mean, (laughs) it was an amazing announcement and I would, I would be scared if I'm another server. Well, it's, but that's what I'm saying. So you, you think about whether you're Peacock or whether you're Paramount Plus or Discovery Plus, like competing against this. I mean, Warner, you know, go let's give Jason some credit. They're looking at this and at least they're coming to battle with an incredible film slate. Like they're putting up huge movies. You can still go see them in theaters, but it's a huge film slate that gives them something to compete with beyond just originals you know, on the TV side. Like it's pretty unique content. No one's ever put, I mean, it's gotta be a billion and a half dollars of content going up onto the, onto HBO max, just from the film slate domestically, their challenge is getting back to the, where you were going before the challenges is, is like HBO doesn't exist in the UK. HBO doesn't exist in Germany. HBO doesn't exist, you know, in lots of parts of the world. I mean, it doesn't even exist in Canada. Where they've, well, they've done they've these long-term I, deals. I think they've announced some dates for Latin America, and I don't. They know have. Yeah. yeah, it's just harder, and like I think that's the next stage of cleanup. Uh, is how do you clean up and actually create a global footprint? I mean, you're seeing, you know, even with Disney, looking at sort of how they played with Star, where it's different. It's Hot Star in Asia. It's this Star included in Europe. It's part of an ESPN separate thing in Latin America. Like legacy agreements are are really encumber all of these companies relative to the apples the amazons uh and the netflixes i mean even in a sense like stars is less encumbered you know because it 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 sort of is a distinct brand on into itself overseas yeah matt ball a while ago did a redef piece on hbo's international operations and it was a series of jvs and everything i mean it was just a different time in the world do you think that that ultimately pushes consolidation you know one of the great things that disney has is hulu which i still am mystified isn't bigger has the ability as from the Trojan horse of Disney plus around the world. Um, you know, we think consolidation has to happen. I mean, we wrote a few weeks ago, why Warner media should merge with NBC universal. I didn't get any, no investor said that's a dumb idea. No investor said that wouldn't be massively positive for both companies. If you, you know, exited the, the, or created a stronger competitor and put it off balance sheet for both companies. Like there's not one person from investors that didn't think that would create lots of value for both companies. The only reason it doesn't happen, my guess is, is ego and belief that they can do it on their own. Can we get to Andrew's question well, listen, about, we, we, yeah, go ahead. I want to get to Andrew's question. Isn't the film biz going to cost plus no way Apple's paying out a percent of iPhone sales or T paying out on churn reduction. Well, it's interesting. If you look at the movies that are being sold to the streaming services from the studio, it's cost plus. <laughs> That's what's happening. You know, it's with TV, it's cost plus. You know, I mean, the economics are just changing. That could be, you could see the studios as being an ogre, or you could see them as being overpayers in the past. I, I don't know. Somewhere in the middle, it probably lies. And by the way, when you have a hit, you can renegotiate. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we did a meeting with, this is years ago. I mean, this is back 
this is probably seven or eight years ago, Brandon, we did a meeting at Warner Brothers um, and I, I'll never forget it. We were talking about the early days of Cost Plus at Netflix. It was a whole bunch of mutual funds, hedge funds sitting around the table with Warner Brothers. And someone, one of the investors said, I don't understand. Cost Plus sounds amazing. You can't lose money. <laughs> yeah, you can't. You, there's no way to lose yeah. money. And you can lever it up and make way more content than you did before. And there's no way to ever lose money versus the old model. You spend lots of money and you have no idea whether you're going to make a billion dollars or lose 300. Why would cost plus not be the best thing in the whole world for the business? Well, it's, it's like if you're an entrepreneur and you sell your company for 4X and the VCs look at you like you're a moron. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it just it was sort of like from a if you could actually create more visibility to the business and take and de-risk the business to where Walt talked before, you're going to make more content. Like the, the overall amount of content that's going to go in, if you de-risk the business, this whole industry is going to make more, more money than it ever made before. Well, let me, let me talk about it from like an example of someone who doesn't buy a home because they remember what it used to cost. Um, that's really what it's about. You know, people, wrote a wave of cable, wrote a wave of film, you know, artists making 60, $70 million from a film or producers getting these huge deals. It's just going to change. Now, if it changes where the overall earning potential is still the same, but now more of it goes to the studio, that's the argument that's happening here. And that's what's really sure. being worked out right now. Yeah. But, but Andrew just added on. But Andrew just added on, like, no studio has 20 plus percent margins. It's not like this is some amazing business in, in totality that you're like, oh, my God, like, this is incredible. The economics actually, yes, you put a ton of money and you can make money, but it's not like the, the ROI is so amazing. This has the potential to be a far better ROI for the industry long term. And it's I mean, I imagine it's one of the reasons that a lot of the studios who you wouldn't think need financing go out to outside money people because it's a pretty risky right. business. Yes. You know, I was amazed at when I was on the board of MGM, how many rights we sold before the movie was even made. Well, and then you look at the fact that, I mean, take a Ryan Reynolds. He made $30 million for Six Underground. We can debate whether Six Underground was a good movie. Um, I think probably most people would say it wasn't an amazing movie, but he still made more money on that film than he's ever made in his career. And if you look at... Brand, to Brandon's point, though, an artist who hears... Yeah, I have to come up with different ways to make movie, uh, make money. But now where I where I spend my time, meaning making this film or making this television show is really just promotion for my clothing line, for my burger you know, line, for my, you know, for my sneaker launch. Yes, those are all yeah. ancillary revenues, but it doesn't sit well with the worker. Sure. Uh, Too the bad. Business, yeah, look, the business <laughs> yeah, is the, sure, the business sure is really honestly worried about that on their jet. <laughs> No, no, every time I look at Walter, I'm waiting for Mike Franchese or someone to come on screen and, and call the game. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like I just think change is really hard. And, you know, I just the, the thing that I keep coming back to that I think would scare me the most if I'm sitting in Hollywood is that all of us have a personal bucket list that is so long. I mean, the amount of pieces of content that we want to watch that we haven't gotten to yet is so long. I mean, I hadn't started Shit's Creek until it won the Emmy this year. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I should start watching Shit's Creek. And the whole family's been watching Shit's Creek. And like, you know, one season every couple of weeks we've been bombing through. And it's like, there is so much content to digest, not just old stuff, but new stuff that, you know, 
the fear is, is like the, the every piece of content is competing with so many other pieces of content. Does it make each one individually less valuable? And I, I just think that's a scary fact. It, it's just, but it's just like, why, why is that any different than the way that the long tail or any, any other idea works? The reality is that your viewing is being fragmented. I spend 60% of my TV viewing time watching non-English um, international productions, which I never spent one moment doing before. Right. To me, that's a wonderful innovation. But now that puts pressure on U.S. productions. Correct, because you can produce in Spain for one eighth of what it costs in the U.S. And you can you know, produce in Russia for probably one twentieth of what you can produce in the U.S. And the quality is remarkably good and the dubbing is remarkably good. My fiance has spent, I think, 60 hours watching Velvet, High Seas and Cable Girls, all Spanish productions, non-English, you know, on Netflix. So we always like to do this with you, Jason. Let's wrap up with a what are the give us five pieces of content that everyone listening or watching should seek out over this nice everyone holiday get their week. pen and pencils ready but i'm gonna bring it to you hey give us give us the jason yeah, Hershon you just, you just change playlist for the holidays wait undercover on netflix now we lost your audio one second Zoom problems. 2020. I think you're on mute. Sorry. Are you there? There, you're back. Yep, you're back. Uh, undercover on Netflix. Um, Banksters on Prime, which is about HBC, uh, HSBC and money laundering. Um, Appropriate for the financial community listening. It's fantastic, actually. Hold on a second. Um, and then... Uh, What's the Kung Fu uh, documentary on Netflix, which is just phenomenal about the Shaw brothers. I forget the name. I apologize, but it's about the Hong Kong film business. And um, what else have I been watching? Um, let's see on HBO Max. Believe it or not, the flight attendant, if you stick with it past two episodes, is the craziest show I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, okay. tri uh, what else? You throw in a couple of things. Oh, by the way, uh, yeah, keep going, keep going. You throw in a couple of ones. I'll find more. Walt, no comment. What's the Pisic? No comment. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm full in on Star Wars now. So I mean, that's, that's but you're of... done. It's over. It's over now. I mean, I mean, I guess you're doing Clone Wars, Brandon. You know me. I only watch cable news and sports. <laughs> I've watched like. <laughs> And TikTok. Jason, who's your more. who's your favorite follow I, on TikTok? I, I finally finished Game of Thrones like a month ago. I, I would watch <laughs> The Wilds on Amazon Prime, which is Lost slash uh, Lord of the Rings, but with girls. Fantastic. And that's it. Uh, we love chatting with you. This was a lot of fun. Um, thank you for doing this. It was great having our first repeat guest. Have cool, a very... Have a great holiday. Happy New Year. And we'll talk uh, after we watch Wonder Woman on HBO Max uh, this coming Friday. I can't wait till we all get vaccines so we can hang out again. I miss you guys. Talk soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.